seen a donut, but um, but hey, let's start the morning by just giving ourselves to the Lord and um, rejoicing in this day that He's made for us, right? So, Father, we just, uh, Lord, it is a joy to uh, to know God that You care for us, Lord, to know that You have drawn us to this place. Lord, to speak your word to us, we don't want to miss a single one from you, God. We, we just right now, Lord, incline our ears to your spirit. We ask, Lord, for you to let your voice be the dominant voice, God, that we hear this weekend. And so, Father, we begin this morning, Lord, by just laying our lives before you, God, and we give you our ears, Lord. We, we relinquish the right to use them to listen to things, God, that are going to distract us, or that in some way, Lord, are going to uh, dishonor us or you or others. And we ask, God, that instead, Lord, you fill our ears, our eyes, our minds, our hearts, Father, our affections, our drives, Lord, with those things that fill yours. God, we ask you to conform us into your image today, Lord. We ask, God, for you to guide us in your paths. We ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. And we ask, God, for you to anoint the speakers that are going to speak to us throughout the day, God, that they would uh, represent your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. So I, I love this conference. My name is Steve Noblett, and uh, I am the executive director of an organization called Christian Community Health Fellowship, or CCHF. And uh, without going into a lot of detail, what we are is a nationwide community of Christian health professionals committed to living out the gospel through health care among the poor. And, uh, and I love coming to this conference uh, because it's one of the few places that I go where I am incredibly mindful that I'm not just speaking to a room full of health professionals and I'm not just speaking to people who may you know, be part of a church that's similar to the church that I'm a part of, but that I'm speaking to people that uh, I know have been ordained as ambassadors of Christ to uh, impoverished and very needy communities, communities that need the light of the gospel and that need the the service of health care, and that he's anointed us and commissioned us as ambassadors to the very fallen but very wonderful power of health care. We're ambassadors into that institution, and so... uh, this is it's it's rare for me to get an opportunity to speak to groups like this, and so I'm I'm grateful to, for this uh, for this opportunity. So they assign me this every year: opportunities in domestic medical missions, and I, I usually change the name of it. Uh, although then it gets tricky, and people wonder if they're in the right uh, the right thing. But the only per, the only people in the world that think about domestic or international missions are Americans, and maybe some Western European folks. So God doesn't think of what happens in America as domestic, as though he lives here more than he lives anywhere else. And the, the, the name of this conference is the Global, right? And so the last time I checked, the last globe that I looked at, the United States is part of that global mission of God, right? And so, um, so I'm going to talk about America as a nation that needs a strategy to be reached through medical missions. And, um, and so uh, these are sort of the five things that I'm hoping that we'll cover today. It'll be mostly brief, but I want to make a case for medical missions in America. 
what medical missions in America should look like? Does it just look like people working in hospitals and clinics and things like that? Um, where medical missions in America is current, are currently being done well and uh, what the need is here in the United States. Like, what you know, do you need to sign up for this? And then what might your next steps be, which are really what you came to this conference for. So, uh, so here's five reasons why uh, you should be involved uh, or engaged missionally in the United States in medical missions. Uh, the first one I've already mentioned is that America is part of God's global mission, right? So God loves the, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Every, people want to make that about me or you individually, and that's, while that's wonderfully true, in the end, it's God loves the whole world. And he loves the people in Sierra Leone and the people in Afghanistan and the people in the United States. And, uh, and he's got a plan for that. Uh, Acts 1-8 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and it's one that I can't get away from, which says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in what Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And for the longest time, I looked at that as God's strategy to reach the earth. Jerusalem, and then once you reach Jerusalem, then you spread out to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and then you spread out to the uttermost parts of the earth. But that's not what it says. The word is not then, and the word is not or, the word is and. And so the same Holy Spirit that's put something in, a passion in you for unreached people groups in North Africa is the same Holy Spirit that is very, very passionate for the unreached people in the dark communities in your own city or in your own rural area. And so, um, and the same thing, and vice versa is true. If you feel it's real passion, you know, I really feel like God's called me to the United States, which I think he's kind of called me to the United States. I doubt seriously I'm ever going to live overseas. Um, but I know that I've got a passion and I want to be engaged and involved in reaching people overseas. And, and, and I think that there needs to be some of both in all of us, right? All right, Acts 17, 26 through 27 is a verse none of y'all have memorized. Anybody, if anybody's memorized Acts 17, 26 through 27, raise your hand. I'll pay you $5 if you can quote it. All right, so this is Paul's sermon, uh, one of Paul's sermons in the book of Acts. And, and it's a sermon, the, the, you've all memorized the verse after this one. All right, so I'm going to quote it to you. It says, from one man... God made all races of men, and he caused and determined the times and the places where each one should live so that, so there's a purpose in this, so that men might seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, for he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, right? And so that in him we live and move, for all of us old charismatics, you know, (laughs) so, you know, the, the, the key to understanding that passage really is the, is the verses in front of that. That God, in his wisdom, you had no choice about when you were going to be born, what generation you were going to be born in. But he caused you to be born now. You had no choice about where you were going to be born. But he caused you to be born and move into the place where you are. And there's a purpose that you're there. And that purpose is so that people can come to know him. And so, um, anyway... You should be engaged in missions here, all right? 
There's a gigantic need in the United States, both spiritually and medically, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. And then finally, there's no better preparation for foreign missions than working in a cross-cultural setting here in the United States where the need is high, where the resources are low, and where you have to learn how to survive and function and be effective in a culture that's very different from your own. Every year that I come to this conference, we have this big booth downstairs, right in the middle of the downstairs on the, in the other building. And, uh, and every year there's a string of missions organizations, uh, leaders that come to my booth and say, boy, we really appreciate what you guys do because the best missionaries that we get to go overseas with us are people who have worked in the CCHF community, the people who have worked in, the, in your clinics around the country because you learn these principles and you put them in practice. All right, so um, so there's a, so I want to make a, a, a case for medical missions in America. Okay, uh, first off, there's a deep spiritual need in America. We're losing our country. Uh, less than 20% of Americans currently attend church, and this is from the George Barna uh, Institute. Uh, you know, and they do all these Christian statistics and things like that. Less than 20% of Americans currently attend church. And only half of those who attend church would identify themselves as Christians the way you and I understand how Christians are identified. So they may say, well, sure, I'm a Christian. I belong to this church. But when you ask them, you know, have you, like, is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? And they look at you with this blank face and say, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Or have you ever had a radical transformative encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ where he has come to live inside of you and filled you with his spirit? So that you can walk with him. Do you know that you're forgiven? How are you going, how do you plan one day to stand before God and give an account of your life? And they give answers that are absolutely, you know, that absolutely betray the fact that they really don't understand the basics of what it means to be a Christian and maybe have never even had that experience. Um, so the Christian church in America is predicted to shrink by yet another 50% by the year 2050, and I, I'm grateful. I see I see a couple of movements in the church in America. Uh, my background, by the way, is pastoral, not medical. And so, if I say critical things about uh, the medical industry, you can throw things at me. But if I say critical things about the church, I want you to know it's because I love her passionately. It's my calling. My calling is to the church, uh, to the bride. I love the bride. I love her so much. But the truth is that, uh, that what we see in America is we see kind of two good things happening. We see, uh, I think, a, a move towards uh, churches reaching back into the inner city where 20 and 30 years ago they fled the inner city and moved all out into the suburbs and to nice, comfortable places where it's safe and where people, where there's restaurants and where there's exit ramps. So that people can get to the church, and and there's there is a move now, I think, in the church in America, that understands that maybe that's not God's strategy to make the church convenient to come to. Maybe the strategy is that the church is supposed to go to where the people are, enter their world, enter their community, and so I see that happening. I think that's a good thing. Although the truth is, like around the, I, I travel a lot. I visit a lot of these churches, a lot of these pastors. And they're really, really struggling and trying to figure out how to do it because they lost connection a generation ago, maybe two generations ago, with communities of strategic need. 
And so here we are. We're at a Global Missions Health Conference. We know how to reach unreached people groups. We know how to get into places other people can't get into and how to, uh, how to use the influence and the trust that we have to shed the gospel. And we need to help the church in this. And so um, the other thing that I see is, the, is, is sort of the growth of these giant megachurches like the one we're in here. But the truth is that I, they're not growing as much by new birth as we really would like to believe. It's mostly the shrinkage of the rest of the body of Christ as people, you know, some of the people are filing out and moving into some of these other congregations. The church is in trouble. Less, this is the one that scares me the most. Less than 1% of Americans under the age of 50 have a biblical worldview. They don't even think about the Bible as something that might impact their work or their marriage or their relationships or, you know, anything other than maybe how they vote. Um, and then finally, the number of Americans that identify themselves as having no religion has more than doubled in the last 30 years, in the last generation. So America's moving, and we're, we're becoming, uh, this, this quote is, should frighten you, it does me, the United States now ranks third following China and India in the number of people who are not professing, professing Christians. In other words, the U.S. is becoming an ever-increasing, unreached people group. So there is a need. If we don't do something now, I want you to think about the New Testament. I want you to think about the book of Acts and think about the most Christian places on the planet in the first, at the end of the first century. And there were places like Palestine, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, those kind of North Africa, those were the most Christian places on the planet. What are they now? They're the places that we're trying to see people called and motivated to go because they're the most closed and most unchristian places on the, on the planet in a lot of ways. And so America is headed that way if we don't do something. This is the nation God has given us. Like we can't look to the Chinese to come reach America. We can't look to the Western Europeans to come reach America. God put us here. This is our country Right, Not because we're Americans and good politically connected people, but because we're ambassadors of a kingdom of God and Christ is the Lord of, of, of the United States of America. And we're here to say we represent a different government. You guys can get up and have your debates all you want. You can talk about crazy stuff all you want. You can embarrass the, the whole nation by a, your myopic views about different things. But here we are. We represent the kingdom of God. We've come to represent his government into this place. Okay? So this is a mission field, all right? Here's what I want you to get, is that missions is not something, God didn't put you here in America to train to one day do missions. Like, that may be something that you do, but missions is not, like if all you think about missions is something that you might do one day or that you're going to do next summer for two weeks or once you get your student loans paid off, you're going to do missions, that's not the way that Jesus taught us to think. And that's not the way the Holy Spirit in you is stirring and, and making you think. Missions is a way of life. I woke up this morning with breath in my lungs to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to use every opportunity I have to advance his cause and to make him look great, <clears throat> because he is. I'm never going to make him look great as, he, as great as he is. But missions is a way that we live. And so I want you to start thinking missionally about medicine in America. Don't think about, you know, well, when I get out of medical school, I'm going to probably get a job at a hospital somewhere, and 
earn some money. I'm going to try to connect with CMDA or with SIM or with some of these other missions groups and maybe do some short-term missions, maybe one day go on the mission field. Listen, God puts you, you got wake up in the morning and be missional in what you're doing in America. All right, so uh, what should missions in America look like, medical missions, domestic medical missions look like? Well, it should not look like that, all right? And, and I think that that's one of the things that we think is that we are trained in our healthcare uh, education to function in a dysfunctional system. So we should love medicine in America. America has absolutely the best resources medically. They have the best educational uh, places medically. But we have a broken system. And so we need to just recognize that it's a broken system. I don't want to spend a lot of time today talking about the brokenness of the American system. But what I want you to know is that God didn't put us here to sort of make it a little bit better. God put us here to offer an alternative. Jesus Christ did not come to sort of make the Roman occupation of Israel a little bit better for the Israelites or a little bit better for the Romans. Jesus came to offer an alternative kingdom. It was the most radical proposal ever issued in the history of mankind. And in the same way, that's what we should be doing. So uh, just as Christ came to establish his kingdom, we should be looking, we, again, thinking of ourselves as ambassadors of that kingdom and be thinking differently. What, let's let the Holy Spirit bring some of his creativity into our heads about health care and how health care should look, right? So health care is important. You can't have a society without it. Every society has a health care system. Even in the neighborhoods that I live in or that I work in in Memphis, Tennessee, you know, the people are uninsured, they can't get to the doctor, but they have a health care system. They have a system in their mind. They're doing something when they get sick. And it mostly doesn't function the way that it functions for people with privilege and with insurance. It mostly has to do with, you know, what they eat or the, the lady down the street that they call that comes down and gives them her diagnosis of their problem and tells them what they need to do. And if they get really, really, really bad and they lose their feeling in their feet and they start going blind in one eye, then they might go to the doctor and find out that they've got and had uncontrolled diabetes for the last six years. So there is a healthcare system out there. Jesus Christ, when he came to bring a kingdom, his kingdom was totally upside down. It wasn't a kingdom that was political. He said to, to the people that asked him about it, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom like the one that Abraham was committed to. I love in, in, um, in Hebrews chapter 11, it gives us a real insight into the story of Abraham where it says that Abraham left his place and his people and his country and that he traveled. He was a sojourner for the whole of his life. And he was because he was looking for a city whose foundations were in heaven and whose builder was God. All right? So the story of Abraham comes on the heels of the story of the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel was the story where all the people of the, in, a, in a big, huge region got together and they said to themselves, let us build a tower with foundations in the earth. Let us make our own bricks. We're going to make our own way to do this and we're going to build it into the heavens. So I want to just say to you that, you know, and God, God said that's never going to meet my purposes and so he confused their language and, and it's all, and, and, and the tower didn't succeed. And there's no 
place that you can go and find sort of the, the ruins of the Tower of Babel today. Then along comes Abraham, and he's looking for a different kind of city, a city that's built upside down to our mind. His foundations are up here, and it's built down into the earth. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So wait a minute, what are you saying? I'm saying that we need to understand what God wants in heaven, and we need to represent that here in the earth. That's what it means to be ambassadors of Christ. It's what it means to be a prophetic people. It's to see tomorrow what God's going to have and begin to work on that and represent that here in the earth today. So, um, so at the very least, I want you to get this. I may be wrong about everything else, but please get this. Distinctively, Christian health care will look something absolutely other than what we have in our country today. Distinctively, Christian health care is going to be as different from the healthcare institutions that we have today as the kingdom of God is different from the kingdoms and governments that we see in our, in our land today. All right, so what should healthcare or missional medicine look like in America? So I think that there's four things, four areas that missional medicine should embrace in the United States. The first is probably the, the most obvious, and that is the way that we view patient care. So let me just ask you, can you think of places in the Bible that sort of teach us how Jesus wants us to think of our patients? If you, if you were to think about what it was in the teachings of Jesus, is there anything in, the, in his teachings that, that sort of provoked you to think about patient care maybe differently than the way you're trained to think about it in medical school? All right, I, there's there's nods going. So, so like, give me an example. Yeah. All right. So Matthew nine, Jesus looked in the crowds and he saw. Yeah, and that comes Matthew at the end of Matthew nine. That comes at the end of Matthew eight and nine, which are these rapid fire stories about people who were demon possessed and people who had crippling chronic diseases and people who were oppressed by a religious system that had lost touch with God, you know, and, and all these different stories about Jesus confronting these things, and he sees the crowds, and he has compassion on them. And so compassion would be one thing. Absolutely, that's great. What's another? Yes? Absolutely. So, so humility Humility should be a mark, right, of, of the way that we interact with our patients. Do your patients want you to be humble? You know, hey, look, I'm just a lowly doctor. They really want you to be confident about what you're doing, but they want to be treated like peers and people, right? All right, what, any others? Nope. Yeah, the Good Samaritan story. So half of the Christian clinics in the United States are called Good Samaritan. And the other half are called Hope. (laughs) Or Esperanza. (laughs) So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Good Samaritan story is loaded with stuff about how we should treat patients, right? So 
the fact that the guy stopped in an area known for robbers means that he was willing to put himself at risk and be where the suffering where the suffering patient was, right? The fact that he was willing to be inconvenienced, the fact that he was willing to put himself in danger, the fact that he was willing at his own cost, if necessary, to take care of this patient, to see them, the fact that he was willing to do follow-up care, he was coming back, right? So all of those kinds of things. All right, somebody else over here? Yeah. Right, the story of the paralyzed man that was let down through the roof, right? So read that story in the book of Mark, and you know what you'll find? The roof that he was let down through was Jesus' house. It was Jesus' house. And he didn't go, dude, you're screwing up my roof! It was like he, you know, he, the, the paralyzed man comes down and Jesus forgives him of his sins. He addresses him holistically, spiritually. So these are really good. One of the, one of the passages that I think... Uh, also really provokes me and really challenges me is the passage in Matthew 25, which was Jesus' final sermon of his public ministry. It was the final thing that Jesus said publicly before he went to the cross. And he tells the story about the Son of Man coming at the end of the age and separating the nations as sheep and goats. And he turns to the sheep and he says, Enter into the kingdom that's been prepared for you since the foundation of the earth. And they're like... Cool. Why? And he says, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and you came to visit me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they're like, when did that happen? And he said, as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And then he turns to the goats and he goes, you guys get to go somewhere else. And they're like, man, why do we have to go there? And he says, because... I was all of these things, and you didn't help me, right? And so there's a number of things in there uh, that I think are really important. I don't want to – so let me ask you this. In this parable of the sheep and goats, who is Jesus in the parable? He was the sick guy, right? So – so many times, like I travel, I go to all these banquets and galas for all of these uh, Christian clinics that are raising funds so that they can do what they do. And people stand up and say, well, I'm so blessed to be a part of this organization because these people are the hands and feet of Jesus. And so, and, and I, I get that. We're the body of Christ and we are the hands and feet of, G- of Jesus in that sense. But in this parable, Jesus tells us that the hands and feet of Jesus here were the poor. They were the sick. They were the suffering. They were the oppressed. They were the naked, the homeless person. And there's a clinic uh, that I love to visit sometimes. And um, most, most clinics, the staff will get together, Christian clinics, the staff will get together and pray before each shift. At this clinic, they, the staff gets together at the end of the shift and prays. And one of the questions they ask is, did you see Jesus today? Where did you see Jesus today? So how would you treat Jesus if he came in for care for you. Now, I mean, I know like that's a really hard thing for us to imagine because Jesus is never going to get sick, right? But yet Jesus says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I had needs. I was a stranger. I was sick. I was in prison. And it's hard for us to imagine, but Jesus reveals himself to us in this way. 
He who clothed the fields with splendor hung naked on a cross. You know, and so, so Jesus reveals himself in this way to us. And, um, and so, you know, here's the other thing. What, what did they get rewarded for? It wasn't for healing the sick. It was just for being present. It was just visiting. It was being with them. And I, you know, you and I have probably, you know, if you guys have done much medical training, we've had two experiences with some of the doctors we've shadowed or some of the doctors that we've experienced. In some cases, we have doctors that come in and look at us like we are just a checkbox of one of the 50 to-do things they've got to do on their list. They come in. They draw, it's all about business. We have, they couldn't tell you the color of our eyes. They don't know anything. They don't know our names. They don't know anything. And they don't know any more about us when they leave the room than they did when they walk in. Except for the diagnosis and the treatment and this is, you know, intervention and this is what we're going to do. And then we've had the privilege of being with doctors that when they walked into the room, regardless of everything else that was going on outside and everything else that they've dealt with that morning, they were fully present with you. You felt like you were the only person on their day, on their docket. And, they, and, and, and here they are. You know, they're with you, and they're asking you, and they show concern and compassion. And so these are, these are some of the places that you can go to, to look at how patient care should be different. So at the very least, it should be a personal, attentive. There should be a sense of presence. There should be, we should treat our patients with dignity that, as the image bearers of Christ. And, uh, and that, and that, again, we mentioned this, that there should be whole person care, that we understand, um, that people are made up body, soul, and spirit, and that all of those things interact to determine their health. You know, John says in, I think it's first, first John 3, he says, I pray that you will prosper even as your soul prospers. And so a person who's spiritually healthy, it's gonna bleed over into his physical health as well. Uh, and, and vice versa. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we should do is we need to see spiritual health as a vital. It impacts everything else. It, it impacts people's physical health as much as their blood pressure and their temperature, uh, you know, and their, and their BMI does, right? So why, don't, why aren't we asking these, why aren't we asking some really basic questions? And, I, and, I, and, the, and I'll, the short answer to that is because we don't know how. We're not trained to do it. But there's places where you can... Be trained to do that. I, I love what one of my doctor friends up in Rochester says. He says, you know, as a doctor, as a, as a primary care doctor, when you get a hold of something that you're not very good at, you get good at it. You know, like the first thing we are. Like we know more than we know how to be doctors. We know how to be students because we've been students longer and better than anybody else. And so we are constant disciples to learn these things. And so be a disciple to learn how to address and assess and intervene in people's spiritual health, okay? Which, of course, means they have to meet Jesus, all right? So um, another area, so patient care is one area. Another area is the culture and character uh, of the clinic. And, um, and I'm going to just run through this very quickly. This isn't the, entirely the intention of this session, so I don't want to spend more time on it than, I'm, than, than I need to, but... Uh, but somebody mentioned this one a few minutes ago, that have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself as a, he emptied himself and considered his equality with God not something to be held on to, but he humbled himself and became a servant and obedient, even unto death, death on a cross. And he did it for people that didn't like him. 
He did it for people that were not grateful. He did it for people who identified themselves as his enemies. Right? And so, um, this is, I, medical school does not teach you how to be humble. Now, residency does teach you how to be humble. <laughs> uh, you know, for the first year. But then the second year, and the third year, and the fourth year, and the fifth year of residency, you sort of get that built back up. I'm at the top of the pecking order again. And, I, and it's something you have to constantly fight. It's the spirit of the age that's sort of infused into the medical training system that we have here in the United States. And so, you know, I, I think that this is a really important thing, is to recognize humility. You know, when you meet a, when you meet a doctor who, is, who has humility as a part of their character, when you meet a health provider who has humility as a part of their character, there's a winsomeness about that. There's an attractiveness about that and an openness. It, it helps people be more transparent with you. Um, so Jesus, in his final prayer, you know, we talk about the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But Jesus' final prayer was really in John 17. And one of the things that he prays is he prays for his disciples. And he says, may they be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Right? And so one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that we have is the culture that we build in the organizations in which we serve. And so there needs to be a sense of unity. So what does that mean for us? It means that it means reconciliation before retribution. You know, it's, it, means, it means if we have a difference with, with people, we work it out. We value the people that are a part of us. Um, so, you know, you need a, a cultural of mutual love and respect among the staff. It's, an, it's a powerful amplifier for our message that Christ is real and his kingdom is good. Honoring one another, enjoying one another, the whole medical community looks at that in marvels. Uh, we, again, we have clinics. There's a clinic in Nashville that's, uh, that has a lot of Vanderbilt people that come through that clinic. It's called Salome Family Health Center. And, and, uh, and people love, like, there's a buzz about Salome at Vandy, you know, where, where people talk about, I love going there because the people are just amazing that you get to serve with. And there's this real sense of joy and, uh, of being together. And then maybe the biggest thing, and this is a verse that I think has really impacted my life over the years. In Exodus chapter 33, this is the story right after the golden calf, right? The golden calf and Moses breaks the Ten Commandments and all that. And then he intercedes for the people because God says, get out of the way, I'm going to destroy them. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm mad, and I know you're not happy, but your glory is at stake. And so God says, okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to give them the land because I made a promise. I'm going to send an angel, and the angel's going to go in front of them. He's going to defeat all their enemies, and they'll just go in and build their houses and live in the land. But I am not going with these people because they're stiff-necked people. And Moses, understanding this amazing covenant relationship that he has with God, humbly goes before God and says, "Uh, with all respect, Lord, if you don't go... With us, we're not leaving. Angel, that's a nice offer. I don't know the angel. I know you, and we want to be with you. And then Moses says this. He says, what else will distinguish your people from all the other peoples in the face of the earth except for your presence? And God goes, that's what I was hoping you'd get to. Now, the presence of God is something that we're promised, aren't we? Like in Christ, he'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll be with us till the end of the age, right? Like his, 
If you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. We are people of the presence of God, and yet we don't know how to, we don't honor the presence of God. We don't know how to live in the presence of God. But most of us have been in settings before where you sense the presence of God. Have you ever been in a meeting or something and all that, you know, like I see smiles coming across people's faces and people's eyes are sort of drifting and I go, oh, it was wonderful. There was so much peace there. There was joy. I just felt bathed in love. I want you to know that's our inheritance. You don't have to live like that one Sunday every few months, you know, for an hour. Like, this is what we bring into the exam room. This is what we bring into our organizations. And this is a culture that we can and should fight for and enjoy. Peace and joy and love and all those things that represent and speak of the, of the presence of God. All right. Um, justice. So, to be honest with you, what I'd rather say is prophetic. But all the prophets spoke about justice, right? They all nailed all the nations and governments and religious structures and institutions because they weren't honoring justice. And so, uh, so justice, I think, is something that uh, should be a mark of missional medicine in America, you know, Jesus, I've already mentioned this. Jesus said, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, listen, there, God is not a two-tier God. He doesn't have a level of acceptability for us sinful, broken people on earth, and that's good enough. But when you get to heaven, it's going to be all different, right? Jesus, the Father, Jesus taught us the Father's heart is for the things that, that are as they are in heaven to be that way here on the earth. And it should be the focus of our praying. It should be the focus of our serving. It should be the focus of the way that we live. We're holy people, which doesn't mean sinless, by the way. Holy is not a term that really identifies or is determined by how, how many acts of sin you do or don't commit. Holy is something we are because he's made us holy, right? And a holy thing is something that has a distinct purpose to it. So like in the, in the Old Testament, when they had the temple, they had forks that the priests used to, when they were working around the altar. And when someone you know, brought a sacrifice and they butchered it up, they would take these forks and they would put the thing on the altar. And these forks were forks. But they could be used for no other purpose and you couldn't use an ordinary household kitchen fork to come and do this job. This was holy unto the Lord. That's what it means to be holy. It means that he has called us and he's called us and set us apart for himself and for his work alone. And so we live this way because that's what we are in the heavens, right? That's how we live. And in, the same, in that same way that we see this sort of standard of reality that's in heaven, and therefore we live this way on earth, that's how we represent the things, you know, here in, um, on earth in, in health care. So one of the issues that we, that we have is that believers should not show favoritism, right? We're not allowed to relate to people based on their income or their ability 
to give or donate or pay or anything like that. And yet their health care system in America is entirely weighted in that direction. Right? It's, if you can afford it, you can get great care. If you can't afford it, you don't get the care. Right? There's a, there are huge barriers to care for people that can't afford it. But that's not how a kingdom domestic medical mission should look. We should treat all people the same. And uh, let me see if I... So the poor receive the same quality of service and respect, regardless. And I, and I like this. Does it pass the mother-daughter test? So my friend Rick Donlin years ago said, you know, here's the bottom line. I, won't, I, do not, I won't be satisfied with the level of care that I provide the poorest person in my community unless it's the same level that I would want my mother or my daughter or my wife to have to depend on for her health care. And if it's not that, then we're not loving our neighbor as ourself, right? Um, so we serve poor people where poor people live. So, again, I have Christian providers all the time. Uh, several times over the, over the last several years I've had people say, all right, I just want you to know that, you know, we're going to take care of the uninsured and we're going to take care of the poor by, by designating 5% of our patient space so that they can come, people without insurance can come and be served in my clinic. And it's like, great, where's your clinic? Well, my, you know, it's, it's where I live. It's, you know, my nice suburb back over here. It's like, well, how are they going to get there? Well, that's a transportation problem, not a medical problem. That's a justice problem. So I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and in Memphis, Tennessee, we're one of the most medically underserved major cities in the United States, one of the two or three poorest cities in the United States, and we actually have enough doctors to take care of everybody. We have the highest infant mortality rate of any major city in the United States. Three zip codes have a higher infant mortality rate than Botswana, for goodness sake. Like a kid born in Botswana has a better chance of having a first birthday than a kid born in one of these three zip codes. And we have amazing medical resources there. And enough doctors. The problem is that the wrong kind of doctors and they live in the wrong place. And we don't have good public transportation. We need doctors to serve the poor where the poor live. I mean, for that matter, I could say, hey, listen, people in Pakistan are suffering, but if they want health care, man, let them come on over, you know? I mean, that's, that's ridiculous, right? Well, it's just as ridiculous to say, hey, they got to figure out a way when they don't have a car and they don't know anybody with a car and there's not good public transportation to walk with their dead feet and their blind eyes and uh, through neighborhoods you wouldn't walk through in daylight to somehow or another figure out a way to get eight miles from their neighborhood to my clinic. So we need to serve the poor where the, where the poor live. That's a justice issue. And we need to advocate for the, joy, for the voiceless and to use our influence to confront health care injustice. i got a lot of stories about those, but I'm not going to get to them because I want to move, move on here. All right, I'm also not going to get to point number four that I really wanted to get to. All right, so what is healthcare, where is health care being done well in the United States? Missional medicine uh, in the United States being done well. So 35 years ago, this is where it was being done well. There were four places. And so about 35 uh, years ago, back in the late 70s, there, there's always been a lot of Christians in health care and a lot of Christians serving the poor in health care. But the truth is that um, it wasn't until about 35 years ago or so that a group of 
Christians across the country, very disconnected from one another, began asking the same question at the same time, and that was, is there a difference between being a Christian in medicine and Christian medicine? Like, if Jesus were the physical therapist that I'm training to be, like, what would he be doing differently than the way that that I'm being trained to do it? Or if Jesus were a doctor, what would he be doing differently than the way that I'm that, the way that I'm doing it, and so they began to, to uh, basically start some organizations, some healthcare clinics, where they could experiment with um, with what it might look like to be Christian clinics. So, uh, and there were about four really in the United States, and all Christian clinics, regardless of whether they recognize this or not, trace their DNA back to one of these four places. And, uh, and so this is what it kind of looks like. Whoops, sorry. This is kind of what it looks like now. There's about 300 Christian clinics in the United States, clinics that are, that are seeking to serve the poor and provide distinctively Christian care. I love asking them, what does distinctively Christian care look like to you? And you, there's about 300 different answers to that. Uh, but there's about 300 of them that are open mostly full-time in the United States. Praise God, 300 organizations. There's 17,000 medically underserved areas in the United States. We haven't scratched the surface. Okay? So there's 300. Of those 300, 200 of them are very small. There's less than 100, just about uh, roughly 100 that actually have five full-time employees or more. Okay? So it takes five people to support one doctor. So one full-time provider, okay? So uh, existing clinics, uh, I've just said this, approximately 100 employed, 10 or more employed, 10 or more employees, pardon me. So there's about 60 of those 100 that are community health centers, which means that they actually receive some of your tax money to do what they do. Your tax dollars at work. Like, I can complain about paying taxes about a lot of things, but I really like that they are funding some of these Christian organizations to get to the gospel with large numbers of people that are in need in, in poor communities. Um, there's a number of different models that are used. There's, you, you guys probably think about Christian health care as either free or what we call charitable clinics, which means that they might charge a little something, $5 or $10 for a visit. But basically they're dependent on charitable donations to keep them afloat. There's a lot of those. But they tend to be small because they're totally dependent on the philanthropic community to keep them afloat. All right, there's hybrid clinics. Hybrid clinics are charitable clinics that have grown to where they have full-time staff, and it's very difficult for them to raise. You know, the biggest, with the exception of, literally with the exception of two or three charitable clinics, the largest charitable clinics have a $2 million or $2.5 million a year budget. And $2.5 million is nothing in the healthcare world, right? Like, I mean, but that's big enough to make a dent in the community that they're serving. When they get larger than that and they have full-time, then they'll begin to sort of do, take, do some billing. They'll maybe start taking some Medicaid or something like that in order to be able to provide continuity care to their, to their patients. But they're still largely dependent on charitable funds. And then there's subscription clinics, and these are guys that, like, they're off, they're unplugged, you know. Um, they don't bill uh, any insurance, 
and they really don't function off of charitable donations. What they do is they sell subscriptions for health care, and they usually um, they do this sacrificially, and they usually try to put their clinics in an area where they can attract paying customers, but usually 50%, maybe sometimes 65% of their patients are patients that can't afford the subscription, and so they make it known right up front. We're, 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 you're paying me $1,000 a year to see me as much as you want to see me, to have a long appointment with me, and there's no insurance involved. But I want you to know that that $1,000 is also enabling me to take care of somebody that can't pay me anything, somebody that's unemployed or somebody that's homeless, and they're going to get the same level of care that I'm giving to you. So that's a, that's a nice way to think about health care, and a lot of, that seems to be a growing way that people are dealing with health care. The problem, there's, there's, there's strengths and weaknesses in all of these models. The problem with this model is that it's great as long as you can provide the care that they need. When you have to give them, refer, when you have to refer them out to specialists, then they still don't have insurance. They still don't have a way to get the care that they need. And then the final model is community health center model, which some of you have heard of FQHCs, which stands for Federally Qualified Health Center. And what this is is a designation by the federal government that there's standards in 19 different areas that they meet. They provide a broad level of care. It's a fee-for-service model, but it's a fee where Medicaid or, um, or some type of insurance basically uh, – supports the clinic. So this one here, a development director goes to work in the morning, makes a bunch of phone calls, gives some tours, raises some money. At the end of the day, calls the doctor and says, I raised enough money for you to see 10 patients tomorrow. And the doctor goes, woo, I'm going to see 10 patients. All right, hybrid clinic may be a little different than that. You know, the doctor says, well, in addition to those 10 patients, I'm going to see several that have Medicaid, and so I can maybe see 13 clinics, uh, 13 uh, patients tomorrow. And subscription clinics, you know, I've got 500 subscribers. Therefore, I'm going to have 500 people that don't that I can that I can see. So 50% of my patient panel is going to be the poor. And you know, community health centers. Basically, the doctor goes in, sees as many patients as the doctor needs to see or can see, and at the end of the day, gives this gives the charts to somebody in billing, and they bill, and somebody pays them to do that. So this is maybe the most scalable model, and so the largest clinics, Christian clinics in the country, are community health centers. Um, maybe there's quite a few that are hybrid clinics. Anyway, these are just different models. There's, the Holy Spirit's creative. There's not a right or wrong way to do this. Okay, The wrong way is to do something that um, compromises your mission. Some people that are doing this really well... Um, this is Brian, Dr. Brian Hollinger, and this is Susan Post. I went to her workshop yesterday. Both of these are here at the conference today, uh, this week. Uh, they, they work at Esperanza in North Philadelphia, the poorest part of the uh, city of Philadelphia. And they work with a predominantly Puerto Rican uh, uh, community. They have four clinic sites uh, in, their, in their city. They take care of about 15,000 people patients that they provide continuous care for, uh, managed care for. Um, they do about 60 to 75,000 patient visits a year. Uh, they are sharing the gospel and praying for their patients. They have chaplains on staff to help with that, but all of the staff does that. 
the most effective person that, I met at, that I've met at Esperanza at getting to the gospel with the patients is actually a front desk clerk who, over, who, who overhears the conversations going on in one of the waiting rooms and calls people up and talks to them and prays for them. This is amazing. Um, they're doing really quality work. Uh, not knowing that he was going to be in my session today, this is Dr. Rick Donlin, who is doing several workshops here uh, at, the, at the conference and speaks at the conference most years. Um, he is, uh, I should let him tell his own story, except I've only got six minutes left, so I'm going to, so, yeah, yeah, so, 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 so Rick and, Rick and three of his medical student buddies, uh, in, uh, at the, at, uh, LSU, uh, in New Orleans made a pact that they weren't going to be sellouts, that they were going to serve the poor and they were going to represent the gospel and the kingdom of God. He chose to go to residency program in Memphis because at the time Memphis was the most medically underserved country, uh, uh, city in the, in the, in the country. And he understands that Jesus' strategy for invading a territory is to take down the strong man, like go to Jericho, go to, go to the strongest place first and build something there and then spread out from there. And so, uh, at the end of residency, he calls his three buddies up and says, all right, you know, cashing in on our commitment. And so the four of them moved to Memphis, started a clinic in, uh, in a South Memphis neighborhood. Um, they became a federally qualified health center, so did uh, Esperanza. They became a federally qualified health center sometime in the, around the late 90s, early 2000s or something like that. What? 2002. Um, they grew to, uh, I don't know, a lot of clinics. They were training over 100 medical students a year. Um, they were taking care of 60,000 patients, somewhere approaching 200,000 patient visits a year. And it was by taking one step at a time. God's a big God. And, if, and like, you're not going to overextend yourself if you're really serving the Lord, okay? He's now the uh, co-founder of a second Christian health center there called Resurrection Health. There's a family medicine residency program there, and they're seeing another 25,000, roughly 30,000 patients taken care of. And so, you know, the obedience of four medical students who were dreaming big, you know, and somewhere in the range of 80 to 90,000 people in Memphis are getting care that wouldn't have had it, you know, otherwise. The guy over here is a guy named Dr. Myron Glick. Myron grew up Amish. Buggies, hat, suspenders, the whole thing. And, um, and when he did his year out, right, he, uh, he, just, he had this encounter with Christ in a really powerful way, and he felt called into medicine. It was very costly for him because it cost him family relationships and things like that for a long time, although that's all been reconciled. And he started Jericho Road Family Practice in the early 2000s. Um, two years ago, it became a, two and a half years ago, it became a federally qualified health center. Uh, they are taking care of refugees from 85 different countries. Buffalo is one of the largest refugee resettlement cities in the, in the country. And uh, several years ago, Myron and I had the conversation about the Acts 1-8 and word and the importance of that. And, um, and so he decided, here's our strategy. We're going we're gonna to follow our patients back 
to their home country. And so uh, this year, or last year, about this time, they opened the uh, Jericho Road Ministries Memorial Community Center in Kono, Sierra Leone, in the middle of the Ebola crisis. And they're in the process of opening another clinic in Congo, another one in Ghana, and they have plans to go to Nepal because that's where their patients, they're leading patients to Christ in Buffalo, New York, who are then motivated to go back as missionaries, and they're following them and supporting them in medical missions. So these, these are places, these are just some of the places where it's being done well. These are, here's a list of Christian clinics that are here at GMHC uh, that have exhibit booths, and you can, I'll put this back up at the end here. Uh, or you can go on cchf.org, and there's a directory of Christian clinics that has a map, and you can click on any of these, and they'll tell you what their model is. They'll tell you contact information. Uh, there's about 75 of these places that offer clinical rotations for medical students, PA students, and nursing students. So uh, the need in America, we need a movement. We need nothing less than a movement. We need a movement of people who are willing to choose daily to promote healing in marginalized communities in the name of Jesus. Um, we need physician champions. We need churches that get it, and they're not going to get it on their own. It's your responsibility to help your pastor understand when you say, hey, I feel called into the ministry. And they say, well, aren't you in medical school? Yes. Aren't you a doctor? Yes, I'm a doctor. But I feel called into the ministry. Oh, do you want to preach on Sunday? Nope. I feel the pleasure of God when I cut. You know? <laughs> I feel the pleasure of God when I'm tree, you know, when I'm do, when I'm trimming the toenails of a, you know, homeless diabetic patient. I feel the pleasure of God when I'm serving the poor in healthcare. That's a minister. Preachers don't get that. Pastors don't. I'm telling you, as a pastor, pastors don't get it. We have to help them get it. I had, I had doctors in my congregation that felt called into the ministry as doctors, but they weren't going overseas. And I didn't know what to do, so guess what I did? I put them in charge of the stewardship campaign in our church because, obviously, doctors make money. Right? So, we're foolish. We don't get it. We need you to help us get it, right? So, we need churches that get it. That's a big thing that you can do. We need primary care centers of excellence. We, need, we, don't, need a, we don't need another... Half a day, twice a month, health center that's going to do blood pressure checks and those kinds of things. And then wish people well, pray for them, and push them out the door. We don't need somebody doing gynecological exams in a cubicle, for goodness sake. I, I wouldn't let my mother go to something like that. You wouldn't let your mother go to something like that. We need primary care centers of excellence. We need people that are committed to the excellence of the kingdom of God. We need people who recognize that we're ambassadors of a majestic kingdom that's an alternative, and it's something that is the desired of the nations. That's what we need. We need people that are committed to that kind of thing. Come to our booth, and I'll tell you what these maps mean. Bottom line is, if there's color on this map, it means it's an underserved area. It means it's a ripe mission field. It means that you've got an incredible opportunity in your own community. And we can help you work that out. All right. Uh, we need pioneers. I'm going to stop with that.
You have a question? Well, or, I noticed you didn't really mention private practice. We're in a medically underserved rural remote area in practice on our own. The dental clinic's private practice position. So I yeah. kind of stood out to me. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And especially in rural settings, private practices, like r- rural health care is the hardest place for us to get pioneers. You're in Alaska. Like, that's the hardest of the hardest places for us to get missionally minded pioneers. Praise God you're here. I'm, I'm glad you're here. And thank you for bringing that up. But private practice is a very valid way. It's almost like prescription medicine in a way because you end up taking care of everybody in the community and the ones that can pay, whether it's through insurance or through co-pays or whatever, make up for the ones that you end up bartering with. Like how, how, many, how many patients have you seen for salmon? Crab salmon. <laughs> everybody I talk to, like, man, I get the best salmon, you know. From my patients, for seeing patients, you know, like, these are all valid things. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Listen, we have a booth downstairs. I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about what you feel your calling is. If there's any way we can help you, we want to help you get plugged in and engaged and equipped to do missions. Let me just pray for us real quick and we'll dismiss. Uh, Lord, the earth is yours and the fullness thereof, the people and all that dwell therein, God. And you are a good king. We are grateful, Lord, to be called into your service, to be ambassadors of your good news, of your dominion, of the standards that you have for excellence and compassion and humility. Father, I ask again what we ask at the beginning, Lord, and that is that your word would would just penetrate our hearts and not die until it bears its fruit, Lord, as you have promised. Father, I commit these to you. I ask God that you glorify your name through their lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.